The Inventive Podcast, mixing engineering fact and fiction. Inventive. 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 With Trevor Cox, Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford. Welcome to Inventive. Sadly, this is the last one of Series 1, but don't worry, we've got engineers interviewed and writers beaving away preparing for Series 2. I'll tell you more about that at the end of this podcast. Now this time on Inventive, a wonderful combination of engineering and storytelling from our engineer Ruth Amos and our author Jacqueline Yallop, who's woven a magical tale of social distancing wings based on Ruth's creation of, well, a magical pair of social distancing wings. Ruth runs the YouTube channel Kids Invent Stuff, where she and her co-hosts take imaginative ideas sent in by children and turn them into physical reality. When I spoke to her, she had just set the challenge to design a crazy exercise machine. Jacqueline's story, Swish, has really captured that sense of possibility, that desire to soar up high while also keeping your feet on the ground, both so essential to engineering. So strap on your inventive wings for another mix of engineering fact and fiction. Inventive. Inventive. At that point, people had been in lockdown for 12 weeks and suddenly were emerging and thought they maybe were in some weird dystopian future. In the flat grass, sand pit, flea pit, flat grey air in the park, the wings swished long dreams of pink days, holding Mina in two metres of safe distance. (laughs) Maybe people just thought they were dehydrated when they looked out of the window and there was this woman with these giant wings walking along the side of the river. Two men with tattoos tugged hands in the feathers, fist grip pink, shoved. But the wings were as strong as the swirling currents of the mountains. The wings were fearless, defiant, and the men went away. Swish. My name is Ruth Amos and I am an inventor. So how's the um, crazy exercise machine going? I think in lockdown we could all do with one. Oh, definitely, definitely. So that is our current invention challenge. So we are currently being inundated by primary school age children's ideas, invention ideas, uh, which is incredible. There is nothing more exciting. You know, we have young people sending invention ideas on the back of receipts explaining a crazy exercise machine. And what you'll do then, you'll pick the best one and then try and make it. Yeah, so we'll pick one of the inventions that stands out to us and we'll try and bring it to life and we'll build it and we'll test whatever that crazy invention does. Maybe you could explain what Kids Invent is then. So Kids Invent Stuff is a YouTube channel which is run by me and my friend Sean and we wanted to show and engage and encourage more young people into science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. Both of us grew up in deprived areas. We understand that, you know, not everyone has all this kit um, at their fingertips. And so we wanted anyone to be able to interact with the channel. You know, it's great to have all these amazing technology-filled STEM outreach work, but actually if parents are struggling to pay for their child to be able to eat then going on about all this wonderful tech doesn't help them. And we wanted to show them how exciting and interesting inventing and designing is and how it affects the world around us. So we set up a YouTube channel where every month we bring to life a different kid's invention idea. So that's why we wanted to do it the way that we do and we build the inventions and we put the videos out there because then it allows anyone to get involved. We will make, you know, any child's invention. It doesn't matter if it comes in, you know, and it's quite often that, you know, they're not necessarily typically the best drawn. You know, they can be pencil, they can be felt tip, whatever it is, it's about that invention idea and kind of honouring that invention idea and celebrating that rather than who's got the fanciest kit. So it could be a fire and water shooting piano or a furry electric dog car or a popcorn firing doorbell. And they are all inventions designed by four to 11 year olds. And then we film ourselves bringing them to life and testing them in crazy ways. 
yeah, I really enjoyed watching some of those this morning. I, I was I've rather taken by the uh, to lower the tone, the farting staircase, because I work in acoustic engineering. And there's this video which did the rounds a few years ago of a musical staircase. This was a staircase which when you yes. walked and it played tunes. And the idea there was to encourage people to walk up the stairs and not use the escalators. I wondered, do, do you think the farting staircase would have a similar sort of kind of effect? I think if you were five or six years old, then definitely. In fact, as an adult, I really liked it. We did tweak them slightly because the great thing about the way that the stairs were built is that you could make them play any noises the stairs worked by adding pads onto your existing stairs so you could make them at home and you could make your stairs I don't know play musical instruments say your name count as you run up and down them and in fact the way that that soundboard works we've used for a number of our invention ideas because it's a really clever way to make an invention have sounds in a really nice and relatively simple way So the great thing about that project in particular is that is definitely one that you could go away and try at home. It's probably an unfair question, but if you were to pick out a favourite invention you've made, which one would you go for? Oh, that is a really hard question because all of them have some something that we love about them. Quite often it's the thing we've just made because obviously that's the thing we've just got excited about. So we've just finished making a jellycopter, which is like a flying machine that drops jelly. But some of the others that particularly stand out um possibly the crossbow that fires a zip wire that we used to escape a tower just because that was one of the most bizarre experiences. Or the gravity racer that was shaped like a cake, but also made out of real cake. A lot of the ones that really stick out for me are often ones where they have needed some sort of courage or bravery from me to test. <laughs> Those particular inventions really stand out for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did think the cake car was quite magnificent. Yeah, I'm not sure that the very serious gravity racers knew what was happening when we turned up because, you know, we entered a proper gravity race event in a little Cornish town and we turned up with our giant cake on wheels and iced with sprinkles and candles and everything (laughs) because there are all these other gravity races where people spent the whole year making them beautiful and go really fast and we turned up with this giant cake. Uh, And I guess you know this is a genuine problem solving task I mean in a sense the the thing you're trying to solve is almost trivial in a sense but it's Good, solid engineering, isn't it? Oh, definitely. You've got something to try and make, and how do you do it? One of the main things that sticks out as my experiences in engineering and inventing was seeing something that I had designed come to life. The first time that I saw that, it was in a factory. I wasn't physically making it. But I know how important those moments are, seeing something that you've drawn or designed come to life. And so Sean and I do feel the pressure as well of of kind of doing the invention justice. So there's the problem solving of how do we make this thing work? How are we going to make this saxophone fire eco glitter? How are we going to make this triple bath? (laughs) But then there's also the other side of it of like, we don't ever want any of the inventors that submit an invention idea to feel like we've not done their invention justice. Yeah, it's interesting you talk there about seeing something realised. You know, I, I work both as a scientist and engineer, and, and science is great. You get these papers where you've made new knowledge, but there's nothing quite like seeing... I remember walking around a factory and seeing there are, in my case, these acoustic treatments that are going to go into a concert hall and make it sound better. And it's just an amazing feeling to, to see something that you've, you've had conceptually on a computer or in a mind, and then there is the physical device which is going to change people's lives. Definitely. And for me, it was a real moment of like, oh... I, before that point, always thought that it was special people that designed and invented things. And here was something that I had designed being made. And that was just such a pivotal moment on my journey into engineering. So that's something that Sean and I want to give the next generation and show them that, no, you can really shape the future. I know we're talking about jam firing rockets but actually all of the things around you have been made and designed by engineers and you know here's an invention that was designed by a young person just like you i think that's really important in engineering because you talk about the creative industries you think of the arts but it's actually making something engineering is a very creative process isn't it you you can't you can't just magic it out without some creativity oh definitely and um problem solving being creative with solutions That's a massive part of engineering and 
I love problem solving. And when we talk to people about engineering, we have to talk about how creative it is. We have to talk about how we're solving problems because I think sometimes that gets missed out when young people are learning about engineering. They don't realize how exciting it is. And that's one of the reasons that actually Sean and I were really keen to talk about inventing because engineering along the way has kind of morphed and changed into lots of different things. So if you say the word engineer to anyone, a child, an adult, they will think of very different things. Maybe they're quite practical, maybe they're not. You know, it can be someone that works at a computer. It can be someone who fixes things. You know, there are so many different aspects to it that that can be really hard to explain that to a five-year-old and try and get them engaged, particularly girls, to show them that they have a really exciting role to play within this industry. Whereas if you talk to them about inventing, that is about problem solving, being creative, all these things that they love. And so that's something we found has been much easier engaging young people in engineering and STEM by talking about inventing rather than just talking about engineering. I did something I hadn't done before. There's this classic one in engineering that you go into Google Images and type engineer and you see all these blokes in you know hard hats and yellow fluorescent jackets, you know, high vis and bemoan the fact that's actually what most engineers don't look like. And then um, I type inventor and into Google and you get loads of old black and white photos of people who are inventors from the past, which, which is really interesting. Exactly. We need to reclaim inventing back. This is it. When you go into a school and you say, what does an inventor do? The kids say all the right things, but I don't think any of them ever thought of themselves as being inventors. A lot of the inventors that are portrayed in films are old white men. And actually, there's a real opportunity here to show kids that there is something different there because they know practically what an inventor does. They know that they design and solve problems and create things. And so if you can then show them that that could be them and you say, you know, this is a crazy car invention designed by seven-year-old Connor, who is the same age as you, look how awesome this is, you could be doing that too. Then obviously you start to engage them within STEM and within engineering. Whereas if you say the word engineer to them, a lot of their views on engineering is, is influenced by what their parents do, what they've seen on TV. So I think that language is really important. And sometimes, unfortunately, the word engineer can be tainted with a lot of misconceptions or preconceived ideas. Something I get a a sense of, children at the age you're aiming at, which is primary school, have this sense of, you know, oh, yes, let's make something and and let's do something and, and quite, you know, quite inventive in what they do. And then that kind of seems to be almost beaten out of them over the years as they get into their teenage life. Is Is that your experience? We have never had a bad invention from a young person. If you ask an adult for an invention, they quite often give you lots of (laughs) terrible ideas. Um, So I think quite often we'll try and make something that an adult would be like, why would you make water crossing shoes? Why would you make a jam firing rocket? And I think part of Sean and I's role is to say, you know, your ideas are really valid. They're great. Like, We should be listening more to young people. And also the reason that we work particularly with primary school is that loads and loads of research shows that young people, particularly girls, make assumptions about what careers they can do really early. Girls are looking around going, oh no, I can't be a scientist, I can't be an engineer. If they're getting switched off at five or six, then you are going to have less young people, particularly girls, wanting to be engineers and scientists. Lots of people talk about the pipeline of getting young people into STEM, but primary is just so important. Uh, It's interesting you talk about pipelines going into STEM and the way people get in, because you've you've actually followed quite an unconventional route. Um, I guess many people would be assuming, for example, that you went to university, but you didn't. Yeah, and, and I think I'm so passionate about people finding out if a career for STEM is for them, is because I very nearly missed out on this career that I love. You know, through secondary school, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I thought I wanted to go to university. And it was only through a teacher setting me a problem as part of my resistant materials coursework, a subject that I took mainly because I went to a, a technology college and I had to. That that was kind of a key moment. I designed a mobility product that helps people be able to walk up and down their stairs. Uh, won an engineering award, got thrown into this whole world of engineering at 16 and found that I loved it. 
and ended up starting a business, didn't end up going to university, but started to design events. It was only once I'd won the engineering award and started to meet all these incredible female engineers. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe I want to be an engineer. Maybe I could be an engineer. And so pretty much on a daily basis, I think how bored and frustrated I would be if I'd have been a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, each their own, I guess. I mean, the, the, the thing is, you, you, you skirted over there, you know, you made something, uh, a mobility aid. It was to help my teacher's father, who'd had a stroke, and he couldn't use his stairs. He wasn't able to get a stair lift. And so my teacher set me the problem to design something that would allow him to walk me down his stairs. If I'm honest, at that particular moment, part of me was like, oh, I don't know anything about stairs. Is this really that interesting? <laughs> but the more I started to research and when I went home and looked into the problem, and that no one had really designed something that was, I always think of it as like a walker or a Zimmer frame for the stairs. And, you know, there wasn't any products like that out there at that point. And so, yeah, that it kind of threw me into this crazy world of engineering and business and bringing a product to market and prototyping and all sorts of things um, that were just amazing skills to learn on the way. You know, things about patenting a product, marketing a product, working with manufacturers. Yeah, it was a, an incredible learning journey. Yeah, I, I was looking at the video of, of a, a young girl, actually, I think, using it. And it, it's... Um... I was trying to think how you could describe it on a podcast. So it's, it's a bit like you've got this bar coming out of kind of handrail height and the bar goes up with you. So you can help haul yourself up the stairs by holding on and balancing yourself on, on the bar as it goes up. Would that be a kind of good description, do you think? Yeah, so it's, it's all mechanical. So it uses friction. And as you push on the bar, it will lock in place anywhere on the rail. And it works the same way going down thanks to friction and gravity. So you move the bar in front of you, you know, it locks in place, you put your weight on, you step down or up the stairs. Uh, And then when you're at the top or the bottom of the stairs, it folds away and clears the stairs. It's a very, very simple mechanism and invention, really. But it just allows people who have some mobility, but maybe are a little bit unsteady, to keep active, keep using their stairs, um, but also stay safe. But as an engineer, you you know actually that the simple answers with the simple mechanisms are the better ones. If you can go that route, the more complicated it is, the more there are things to go wrong. Oh, definitely, yes. And I think there is something in, in solving a problem in a simple way definitely makes the whole process a little bit easier. Also, at the time, I had very little electronics knowledge, so something that was mechanical was where my skill set was. Were you naturally pushed towards trying to deal with this uh, stair problem or, or was that typically what happened in the class or, or what, what would they typically make? Uh, often guys would get to make CD racks or DVD stands, whatever they wanted really. Uh, girls quite often would end up making jewellery boxes and I just did not want to do that. It did not interest me at all. And yeah, my teacher saw that I was not engaged and set me another challenge. Um, he was such a big influence and it made me realise how real people doing things, setting problems, encouraging, are massively important when it comes to engaging more young people in STEM. And it's so important that there are women role models as well. Often the engineer on the television is the bloke, isn't it? Definitely, but also, you know, diverse representation across the board. So you want to be showing young people that women, those in the BAME community, men and women from different social economic backgrounds, those that have, you know, neurodiversity. Engineering has a place for everyone. So Sean is actually dyslexic and he is able to look at things in a completely different way. And it's great that everyone looks at the world in a different place. How boring would it be if everyone looked at the world in exactly the same way? Engineering is one of these industries that actually really benefits from people Um, being neurodiverse because you look at things in a different way and in fact a lot of my friends who are engineers are dyslexic well actually that makes you great at being able to solve problems you know I don't think any of us are normal and I think actually it's about celebrating that you know sometimes it involves people putting their head above the parapet standing there and being like yeah I'm an engineer this is what I do look at this awesome job you could do this as well and I'm forever grateful for those people that came before me that did that 
and kind of made me think, oh yeah, no, I could be an engineer. There are so many young people out there who think that they are not clever enough to be an engineer, that they don't come from the right places, that engineers don't look like them, and they are wrong. And it's interesting you started off in a, a mobility area. It's something I've worked a bit on in my own time. And if you don't have that diversity in the team, you're unlikely to come up with the right answers because in the end, you end up inventing something that the young white males think works and that's not always going to be the best answer. Totally. And, you know, when you look at so many products that weren't designed by diverse groups of people, they don't pick up on the issues. They think everyone is like them and that is not the case. Um if you're sat at a table where predominantly people are male and white and middle class, they're not going to necessarily understand how things work. And it's just so important that we have representation when it comes to engineering. And did engineering come naturally to you then as, as you were growing up? Looking back, I probably should have always been an engineer. In fact, my younger sister went to university and studied engineering. My younger brother is an engineer. <laughs> um, we grew up designing, making, playing with Lego. Um, but I just never really saw myself being an engineer. A lot of, At the time, a lot of the TV that I watched, there might have been women presenting, but there were very few women actually making and designing. And I think I just always saw it as something that was mainly done by men. Um, but I think I would have just been a very unhappy adult if I hadn't become an engineer because I'm, you know, you, you know, I'm constantly making things, having ideas, looking at like, oh, that, oh, you could just change that and that would be better. Or do you know what I mean? And I think you, you know, when you do something and you just know that this is what you should be doing, that's kids invent stuff for me. Like it can be quite all consuming and it's amazing and we work ridiculous hours, but it's it's my thing. It makes me so happy and I feel so lucky, um, honoured that Sean and I get to work with all these incredible mini inventors and bring them these ideas to life and learning along the way. I think people expect Sean and I to know everything. Um, when we first started Kids Invent Stuff, it had been years since I had picked up tools. But so much of it has been such a learning curve for Sean and I. And it's great. You know, we don't choose an idea and go, oh, we know how to bring that to life. We'll be like, oh, that's a great idea. How do we bring that to life? You know, every single build, something goes wrong, something fails. And we tried to show that as well. It's never an issue with their invention idea. But quite often, Sean and I will have issues with the way we've chosen to solve that problem. So we like to show that we are failing and learning along, along the way as well. I wondered if uh, just a sort of slight change of gear here. If I was if I was to grant you a superpower, what would you go for? Oh, I would love to be able to fly, hands down. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Richard Browning has created this amazing gravity suit, and I would love to have a go. To be able to fly would be amazing. Yeah, that was an easy one. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I want to fly. <laughs> I noticed you made some social distancing wings, but I guess they didn't allow you to take off. They were a lot of fun. They were a lot of fun. Yeah, unfortunately, they didn't allow me to fly. Um, they could potentially act a bit more like a glider if you went to the top of a hill. I, I don't know. I suppose humans have always been interested in flight, haven't they? And there is something particularly inspiring about personal flight. I mean, the wings you made were quite magnificent, even if they didn't fly. A bit like Angels of the North, but out of feathers. Yes. Yeah, so they are these giant retractable wings um, and they're made out of lots and lots of red feathers. But they're, they're, it's almost a project that kind of got away with me because um, this amazing invention idea was sent in for uh, social distancing wings. So wings that opened up if someone got close to you. And they are made up, they have a, a linear actuator in the frame. So they have a frame that comes out of the back of a backpack and a linear actuator that opens to make them even bigger. Um, and coming off that frame are, first of all, their fabric wings. And then on top of that is literally hundreds of uh, red feathers that are then uh, kind of stuck on top of that. So they have this amazing effect as you open them and they unfurl. They just seem to get bigger and bigger. Um, 
And they were such a fun project to do, particularly in lockdown. Um, I hadn't quite realised when I was making them how big they were going to be. Uh, but yeah, if you take them kind of outside to a space and you open them, they're really quite impressive and it looks like you're about to take off. Yeah, how, and how did people respond? Well, I think lots of people wondered what on earth was going on because at that point people had been in lockdown for 12 weeks and suddenly were emerging and thought they maybe were in some weird dystopian future. Um, but as part of the invention, you know, people found it really interesting. It was actually in the middle of the summer, so it was quite warm. <laughs> Maybe people just thought they were dehydrated when they looked out of the window and there was this, yeah, woman with these giant wings walking along the side of the river. Um, It was just a really nice, creative project. I really enjoyed, um, it was like the perfect project of kind of a mix of engineering, but also being a bit more creative and, and kind of crafty almost with stuff. I mean, they were, they were truly magnificent. I, I really enjoyed watching that video. But uh, in Inventive, we work with an author to create a piece of fiction around your story. And uh, we're working with Jacqueline Yallop on this one. She's worked on critically acclaimed novels, been long listed for the booker, but also written non-fiction. What do you think about having a, an author write a bit of your story or your journey? I think it's such an honour. It's like incredible that someone would spend their time and put their creativity into a piece of writing. I love reading and it's kind of a big it's one of the kind of key things that I do to switch off from everything and I think that there is something so powerful about being able to tell a story and to get people to think differently um and yeah it's amazing that she is spending the time to write a piece on me (laughs) Well, thanks to Ruth for now, but she'll be back on Inventive in a moment because I've invited her to listen to what she inspired in our author. I wonder if she'll still feel honoured. You'll hear her response straight after the story. But first, a few words from the writer. My name's Jacqueline Yallop. I wrote the story Swish after listening to the interview with Ruth Amos. There were loads of things that... that were really interesting to me and particularly I think the the kind of crossovers between writing and inventing and engineering. She talked a lot about creativity, she talked a lot about the relationship between problem solving and creativity um, which is common I think to both what she does as an engineer and an inventor and what I do as a writer and she talked about um, doing ideas justice which, again, I think is, is exactly what we're both trying to do. Um, how do you take an idea and allow it to to grow? How do you allow it to <laughs> have wings and fly? Um, and um, she talked... One of the things I tried to bring out in the story is, is she talked about the importance of what she does um, as offering a different perspective. Sometimes you have to look at things differently, she said. Um, you know, and you have to be aware of how one thing goes into another, you know, and, and I think that's absolutely what I tried to capture in the story, but also what happens again um, in writing as it does in inventing. So I was just fascinated by that idea of the social distancing wings, and I saw a fantastic photo of her wearing these huge ready pink wings and that's where I started with and then I had to think well what happens next where does this go so I started with the idea of someone having these wings and what it might mean to them and obviously there's a kind of covid thread going on there in the story with with the loss of Mina's father um, but also a, a kind of resilience recovery hopefully um, thread at the end of it and I wanted to to go back to, to kind of Ruth's thinking about, you know, um, how do you do these simple ideas justice? Because actually they're very complicated, aren't they? And what seems to be a simple thing has lots of resonance in so many ways. And that's what I tried to capture, the, the magicality of someone having wings. How wonderful would that be? You know, what a, a magical thing it would be to have wings but also 
because this is not a fairy story, this is not a, a fantasy story, how the how Mina is still bound by human relationships and emotions. Swish Blue sky, blue snow, the dip-run of sky-scratching mountains, folding mist-hung green. And she could not take it all in, this Mina of the fumy town, because she'd never been to the mountains before, not once. But the bump and chug-rattle of the train rubbed between her shoulders, an itch, a tease of such tingles that her heart skip-sang up the slopes. Alone like this, like always now, Mina had the carriage to herself. The sign said, family carriage. But even in the far shadows, there was no family. Not the nod of her father's ghost. The slip smile of wrinkles he'd worn on the way to the hospital. The shimmer of a hand she should have held, not so much as a whiffed waft of tea onion breath. None of the faces from album photos fallen between the seats. No nose like her nose, squat, pimple and freckled, pressed to the falling dust-wide windows. Chug, rattle, blue sky, blue snow, tingle up the spine, the family carriage ghosted and the peaks sweeping towards her, sweeping her up, circling Closing, scratching out the sky. Mina had no words, because she had no one to hear them. Word-stuffed Mina being gobbled by the mountains, and no one to hear her. Chug, 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 onto the funicular, squeaky yellow paint, hauling chains up the slope, and then the snow. From green-grey to blue-white, to lilac and mottle light, skip shadows, season smoothed and time nowhere, nothing. Up and up, chug and chug, and the sky peeling open, seamless and settled, jitters in her stomach like sparrows in a sack. Mina alone in the hut on the top of the mountain, pine-fresh scuff-splinter New girl anxious, then following the arrows on the grass track, red blood paint arrows, dinosaur printing the snow. Your safety is our concern, the leaflet had said. Your health is in safe hands. A swish of an arm from the person in PPE, swish slap in the air in the blue mottled mountains, swishing her to the viewing gallery, the bench a pair of binoculars, nothing else. Clip-clack of the door lock behind her and the timer set. Mina at the cold ice window, the frost glass, peering, edging, the tingle in her back, a tremble, and below the hurtle of blue-white snow and grey-green mountain, the bounce of boulders and nothing. To both sides booths spining the ridge, the blink flash of windows, empty booths or full, family full, no way of knowing. Mina sitting on the bench in the hand rub, wind scrub cold and wishing for gloves and scarf, staring into the expanse of sky. Empty, cloudless, thoughtless blue, dream wish, dreamless blue, above the mottled blue snow mountains and the long flight languor of huge birds hanging wish dream in the float current boat wash blue. An hour passed, maybe more. The clickety-click timer pipped the seconds out of sight. 
Mina ate her chocolate bar and checked her phone. Shadows sieved onto the glass and the ghosts not calling. A door slammed, quick bang, and a voice sounded on the wind. Low voice business, a rumble whisper that could have been mountain. The birds circled, drew slow spirals into the wishless, timeless blue. Long, slow loops lassoing the drift of longings. Gliding, still, they drifted on the hot, warm days that breathed from the plains far below. One drift slid towards her, hung above, a knobble of head, smooth white, quick-eyed stillness, currents cradling this bird in the warm hang of far away. Ragged fingers flicked the wind, a message to breezes travelled, and in its sights something on the ground, invisible, a mouse, a snake, pinned to land in its gaze. It lowered, hung, its wings sung above her in the hushed huge blue. They sung of all the air from all the places beyond the mountains, of time passing, of memories scattered on the wind. In the ebbing currents around the booth, this bird hung on semaphore wings and light squeezed bronze through the clasp of feathers, so that Mina thought of the rung yellow, gold grip hospital light, which shone right through her father's skin the night he died. The bird banked on a breeze, soared, scored a closed circle into the hard blue lid of her memories. At the end of preparation, capital P, the door clip-slid open and Mina followed the arrows back to the yellow paint funicular, back to the chug-rattle train. Alone in the train, chills sprouting up her spine, rittle-rattle, smudge-shadow, mountains slinking away, shimmering, breaking, shimmering, vanishing, gone. Two weeks later, at the fitting, capital F, the man said, stretch your arms, stretch them right out. Her wings unfurled with the easy rustle of feathers, a whisper of the mountains, swish. Mina looked at herself in the mirror, a small brown nub nestled in the new weight frame, a bug, a larva, an unready bird. The website guide had suggested black was the most practical colour for wings and white the most popular. But pink had been the right choice. Crisp packet, sucky sweet pink of old ballet dresses and celebration saris. Her wings drip rustled mirror spangled pink and the man leant forwards and said, Any places where they rub? Any niggly bits? Now's the time to say. She raised and lowered her arms. The wings braced, spanning her two metres into the grey-brown room of needles and spanners and bones, carving clearance into the workshop so that the man stood back, giving her up to the safety of distance. I'd get used to them in the part first, if I were you, he said. We've had a few issues with supermarkets. Nothing to worry about, just, you know. You didn't catch the bus here, did you? No, Mina said. Good, that can be a right palaver. Her wings shivered, trembled in the cleft of her shoulders, shivered with the sound of breeze through bare branches, trembled with the jitter of new leaves. There was a website, the man explained, with details of preening routines. Aftercare, capital A. Keep the joints oiled, he advised, so you can fold them up and down nicely when you don't want them sticking out like that. 
Then the doors rolled open like clouds peeling from the horizon and he released her. Just take care on windy days, he said. In the flat grass, sand pit, flea pit, flat grey air in the park, the wings swished long dreams of pink days, holding Mina in two metres of safe distance. She took the centre of the path. Bike boys and scooters dodged her. The roller skates and prams and the old couple with the red collar dog parted, retreated, breath untangled, intentions skidding on the wet winter grass. Two men with tattoos tugged hands in the feathers, fist grip pink, shoved, but the wings were as strong as the swirling currents of the mountains. The wings were fearless, defiant, and the men went away. Swish. Mina loved her wings, the flip-flap fold of the primaries and the strong arm sweep of the humerus. She trip-flap flew the narrow wall by the cemetery, hopped the lines on the zebra crossing, watched the others, quick and light, drifting through the park to school, to work, to the shops and home again, nimble cut-air manoeuvres, Black wings on black suits, white wings over overcoats, quick flick aviary dances, flutter feathers, a constant whisper of wishes. She nodded back to these others, tipped her wings, as if she'd been born into the flock. In fog, Mina's wings beaconed. In heavy rain, the pink dye drip ran, trailing her. When it was breezy, The wings sang of places she'd never been. At night, the dark roosted among her feathers. Gold fleeced his wings that first time, the flick-light flicker of sudden sun grazing Yorgi by the bad-weather hut, gold-yellow glisten in the bank of daffodils. Daffodil wings, Mina said, not intending him to hear. Course, he said, smiling. Sunflower, buttercup, what are you, fuchsia, rose? Neon, she said. He had a laugh like spring skylarks. Two days and two hours later, a few minutes either way, Yogi again, head down, long stride, wing to wing, with a friend, a waggle feather greeting, and nothing more. Three weeks and four days and one hour after that, Yogi sitting on a blossom tree bench. I've still never seen another pair of yellow wings, Mina said. Hello, Neon. Feather shake crimping the blunt end of winter and blossom falling like mountain snow. It was a bit of a whim, he said. Stupid, really. They're getting a bit shabby anyway, so I'll probably get rid of them soon. He plucked loose plumes from his bold stump wings. I've looked after them, he said, but you know, I've had them ages. I was fitted early. What colour will you get? I don't think I'll get another pair, shrugs I. No need really, is there? Not now. Oh, but you need wings, Mina said. Next time... On the ball-playing, dog-run street near the primary school, his wings were so scruffy there was just a wink of yellow, a rough, ragged, slunk-dye blink beneath his arms. It's not a good look, is it? He invited her to the cafe by the canal for tea the following Saturday. I will smarten myself up, he promised. Hyogi at a table, red-shirted, hair-snipped, beard-snipped, blue mountain sky eyes without his wings. The sun beating hot on the slow green shiver of the duck slide canal and Mina slurping cold lemonade and a scoop of ice cream. Hyogi with earl grey tea and a scone. Mina puff fluffed to her full two metre span and the waitress skirting the rough of pink with a loaded tray. You should try on clipping sometimes, he said, or at least 
folding them down. I like them. But still, no one can get near you. That's the point. That's what they're invented for. I know, but Mina, hardly anyone's wearing them anymore. Mina saw that this was true. Wingless at the tables on the cafe terrace, on the towpath, on the barge chunt chugging from the lock, on the street. How had she not noticed the wings had gone? She slopped her spoon into the gloop melt of ice cream. Her wings pulsed in the breath of still hot air, creased the chatter of grannies and mummies, sang of high currents, circling sleepless seas. I want to keep mine, she said. Spanning the towpath with her feather tips, kissing the slouch green canal, she walked ahead, past the boats clip-ringed to the bank, along the back of the brick warehouses, between the bullocks of bulrushes, as far as the place where the scrapland flattened. He tried to talk to her from behind, from far away, from two metres and more, telling her stories of himself over the rustle of feathers. Swish. My sister's having a barbecue next weekend, he said, Sunday, if you'd like to come. Later, he texted her the address. Next day, under the terms of the follow-up service, capital F, capital S, Mina returned to the workshop where she'd been fitted. Two hours trudging hot, hard, fume-hot roads. Traffic whistle-grating, sweat prickle-sticking, feathers slouching, and her feet bloated like the call of frogs. The cradle across her back scrubbed her skin. The workshop was closed. Pinned to the door, a paper sign rag-flapped a phone number, but when she rang it, no one answered. She went round the back, picking through the scatter of feathers, oily spoilt and grounded. Daisy's crack grew. She saw a man sitting on the curb in the shade of a shabby tree, a black wing man, broken black wings, lopsided and loose. Do you know what's happened to the workshop? she said. I wanted to place a new order. He stared, shuffle-winged. No one there. Yes, I realise that, but is there somewhere else? Have they moved? Dry ringing. A core voice like a crow. I have, but I couldn't get through, she said. Have you rung? Oh yeah, loads of times. No problem. So someone answered. No, he said. But I got through okay. It rang the number, rang and rang. Good rings. Gnarly hands on battered wings, soft stroking, and an old time, no time smile, like he knew the way the world should be. Mina set off back. Summer burnt through and blown away. Bristly November drizzle, cloud-closed views from a steep street, the park, the roundabout, the main road, a crenellation of high-rise, more terraces. Mina with an address in her head, letter-pressed, typeset, a blue-green door, leaves skitter-fretting at her feet, and her wings weighted with... with what? Hoping the wind might catch through the bent pot chimneys and sing of other lives, but her feathers hanging low, and damp and silent. At the upstairs window, a face, a child's face, scratch glass, blink smile, then gone. A woman opened the door and looked at her, a thin woman with blue sky eyes. Do you want something? No, sorry, I'm just, I'm a friend of Yorgi's. My Yorgi? I suppose so. That's nice, I've not seen him for a week or two. Did he send you? No, well, no, I've not been in touch. Not recently, and I was just... I'm his sister. Yes, I know, I was just passing. I thought I'd... How did you know I lived here then? He gave me your address once, ages ago. 
I was going to come with him to a barbecue in the summer. Well, you're a bit late for the sausages. She looked at Mina as though she was scanning for footprints on new snow mountain peaks. Are you okay? Do you want to come in? Can't. Mina gestured to her wings. Suck sugar, droop petal pink now. Or you can take those things off. We don't mind, not these days. That's all done with. The child appeared at the woman's side and then another one, two boys, scuff-legged, lank-haired boys in a wrangle peep of wandering. Hyogi's sister waited. Maybe you've been looking at things back to front, she said. They waited in the doorway for Mina. They heard the swish of wings, all of them. The long sigh, high sky hiss of broad wings, slicing the grey-bound, earth-bound press of rainy stay-in days with the sharp promise of marvels. Swish. Above them, somewhere far above them and out of sight, a bird drifted from the mountains. Sometimes you have to take a different perspective, Yorgi's sister said. In the swish-sink wake of time passing through feathers, Mina realised she'd misunderstood. She'd not thought the problem through, not looked at the right the way round, what might happen, in and out and up and down many sides of it. The problem wasn't keeping people at distance. That was only the beginning. The clever bit was bringing them close. That was where the invention lay. That's why the wings were engineered to fold. Slowly, Mina creak-cranked her pink wings closed, nook-nestling behind her. In the fan-pleat of feathers, she heard a final song of many possibilities. When she stepped into the hall, one of the boys took her hand to pull her towards the kitchen. The other wrapped his arm around her leg. Yogi's sister smiled. Come and have a biscuit, she said. That was Swish by uh, Jacqueline Yellop. What did you think of it, Ruth? I thought it was beautiful and quite um, emotional. I don't know whether it's um, the year that we've all had or the fact that I could just see um, Sakuko, who was the little girl who designed that drawing, that invention that we built. Um, Yeah, just amazing. It, It actually is a year to the day since I was in the middle of making the wings. So it's quite poignant to have such a beautiful piece of writing um, to listen to that today. Who would have thought it? (laughs) Yeah, and particularly poignant in a way because we've just had an announcement of lockdown being extended, isn't it? So this kind of sense we have to stay apart for a bit longer is just literally in the news as we talk. Yeah, I mean, it's been a year, isn't it? There's so many different nuances to... Uh, the, the year we've all had, but then also within the story. And yeah, it's just, just beautiful. And to think that uh, something that came out of that challenge was set as an invention challenge for inventions in lockdown in this time when we all had to, to kind of stay apart, that something so beautiful uh, could be written about that, about coming back together again. Hopefully soon, it'll be something we'll be able to do. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll be wonderful, won't it? Uh- I noticed that Jacqueline picked up on a, a comment that you had made about doing ideas justice, the ideas that the kids send into you. Do you think that she's done you justice in that story? Oh, definitely. I was uh, at the beginning. I was trying to think about where where she might be going with that, 
Um, and yeah, it was just beautiful, really, really well written, such um, beautiful visions and such melodic writing as well. Yeah, that's funny about the sort of where's it going at the start, because I obviously have read this beforehand when it got sent in originally, but I had the same kind of thought as we started off thinking, now, how's she getting to the bit I know that's coming up? So it's very interesting how the writer's scene set uh, before they get to actually, uh, I guess, the engineering. Yeah, and I think it's always interesting listening to a piece of writing versus reading a piece of writing as well. Um, it's made me want to read it as well, if that makes sense, and or go back and listen to it multiple times because there's so many great pictures that she paints across that. It's almost like within the 20, is it 22 minutes? She paints a picture kind of every 30 seconds. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, the density of the imagery is so much. You, you can't really take it in on, I think, on a first listening, uh, which, is, which is wonderful. You mentioned the, you know, it being quite emotional. And I think that's quite interesting from an engineering point of view, because I don't think emotion and engineering, if you did a sort of synonym search, or, or I don't know, it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it, emotional engineering? They're not two words you would often put together. I think it's maybe two words that we should put together more because engineering is everything. It's the world around us. Most things that we can see have had some sort of engineering input. And in the same way that we look at a great work of art and it makes us emotional... Maybe, you know, if we understood, I mean, I sometimes get that emotion looking at certain things or, you know, I think emotion, passion, excitement, uh, maybe that's the secret to getting more young people into engineering. It's finding that thing that gets them excited, that gets them emotional. I know I can look at something that's been made and it can be quite emotive because of the fact I know what's gone into that. So maybe it's something we should be doing more of, emotions and engineering. I couldn't agree more. And actually, that story, in a sense, is all about unintended consequences. You know, the you make these social distancing wings, and yet as a character, Mina then distances from potential relationship. And of course, unintended consequences are not just about sort of a practical things. They should be about how they affect us as a human. Totally. And, and I think... You know, that there's a lot in that story around the consequences of some of these things. You know, there's a lot of ethics, I feel, within engineering of should we be building certain thing? You know, we look at the how reliable we all are on our phones and does that connect us more? Does that connect us less? How does that, you know, when we're, you know, there's lots of worry about young people playing lots of video games. You know, there's loads of great skills you can get from that, but people are worried maybe that stops them from learning so many social skills so I think there's always these great ethical conversations when it comes to engineering and I mean I'm particularly a fan of kind of the futuristic genre and so to see this world imagined around the wings was just fantastic and it gets you thinking about all these other elements of that and yeah just that's what art should be about art and engineering should be getting you to think more about the world around you. And I'd like to finish by thanking you for you know, doing the interview, but also being prepared to have some rights about what you do, because, you know, you don't know what was going to turn up. So it was, it's been great to talk to you, Ruth, again. No, I'm just, it's just so exciting to think that something, you know, this child's drawing that was sent to us has inspired so much you know we built the invention and that in itself has inspired the story and you know all these little ripples go out and affect more and more people and I'm just so honoured that someone spent the time to think through her idea and create something beautiful with it so thank you once again no thank uh, you for having me much very much appreciated well thank you for letting me ramble (laughs) inventive there was one phrase that ruth amos just said in her response to that story which really shone out to me art and engineering should be about getting you to think more about the world around you In a way, that sums up what we've been trying to do on the Invented podcast. Bring a new perspective to engineering and our experience of it through our mix of fact and fiction. Has it worked? Has it changed what you think about engineering? 
Please get in touch on all the usual socials or at www.inventedpodcast.com and let us know what you think. And we're always interested in hearing ideas for engineers and writers we can feature in future series. We've already got some really interesting pairings lined up for the next series. Sean Cleaver, who aspires to be the first woman on the moon, has had her story turned into prose and rhyme by rap artist and fellow aerospace engineer John Chase. Poet Katrina Porteous is currently writing a work based on the experiences of young robotics engineer Jack Howarth. We'll hear from disaster risk engineer Joshua Makabuag, who we've paired with writer Nina Allen. We're also looking at hydrogen technology and its role in dealing with energy and climate change. We've got author George Sandiford-Smith, who draws on the work of Ines Abohamed and Manjot Chalna. We'll also hear from Larissa Suzuki, a data practice lead at Google and an academic at UCL. Alternative careers to the one of concert pianist her parents wanted for her. She is reimagined in fiction by author Tim Morn. I very much hope you can join me for all of those. Make sure you don't miss them by subscribing to us on one of your podcast apps or go to www.inventivepodcast.com. Inventive. 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 Here's a little taste of what's to come. If you look around, the greatest inventions of our lifetime are engineering inventions. And they all come to solve a problem. If we were able to invent all of that, there must be an invention to, uh, and a solution to climate change. At the end, our problem is carbon. And hydrogen is offering a real alternative. It's a very elegant molecule with a very elegant solution that does not emit pollutants. And that could solve many, many of our problems. I think that hydrogen is the past, the present, and the future. Being a musician for me was more about expressing creativity. Even right now, when I'm creating a design and I'm implementing it in the lab, that for me is still a huge form of creative expression. When I'm writing software, I'm writing it from the ground up, and that for me is assembling the building blocks, just like you would when you're creating music and you're assembling the individual tracks, drums, the, the piano, the strings. Uh, that, that for me is how I feel when I'm compiling software or when I'm putting together different parts of a hardware system. Even when I'm soldering, that's all still creative expression. And what sort of reaction do you get to the public from this? Because going back to the moon is retreading ground. You know, haven't we done this before back in the 60s? Well, yes, but we only sent men then, American men, <laughs> to the moon. Now it's time for women to go to the moon. It's time for Europeans to go to the moon. It's time for a whole diverse crowd of people to start accessing the moon and open it up to the whole world, really. But also, we need to make this step so that we can go onwards to Mars. It makes it a lot easier if we can have this stepping stone. And also, of course, remember there's a whole generation, a whole few generations of people who weren't alive at the time of the moon landings. I mean, I certainly wasn't. So a large proportion of the world will be seeing this for the first time. And that, I hope, will inspire young people and, and do wonders for the world of engineering. I've like doubted myself in the past. Like I always wanted to do a degree, but I started thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm clever enough. So I just like put in maximum effort. And then next thing I was like, I can actually achieve a first class here and I, and I achieved a first class and I thought there's an, I would have never never thought that I could do that and then there's people that I worked with they were like Jack like you've got like such a good foundation of, of like engineering knowledge and you've done a degree like you'd be perfect on that graduate scheme like I looked at it and I thought oh my god that looks like brilliant but I don't think I'm clever enough to do that but then once like I kind of like built a bit of confidence I was like yeah do you know what like I, I can I can do it honestly it's the best thing I've done like the opportunities are endless I was kind of feeling my way through school and university because my parents, they both left school when most people did and my father was a mechanic and my mother is a bookkeeper. For me then, it was really very much a kind of feeling my own way. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I now have such an unusual profession, being a disaster risk engineer. And that's just because I've very much always taken the opportunity to find my own way. I grew up in not necessarily a well-off family. Being in an apprenticeship and earning a wage at kind of a young age, you know, 18, 19, 20, a decent wage at that wage, which I was proud of. It was a huge help for my family when, when things kind of uh, hit the fan. My favorite bit.
I mean, seeing the, the scribble on the back of a, uh, a napkin become a full-fledged design and not only just become a design, but I also get to, with my own hands, assemble that design into a fully working capable system. That is the most exciting bit for me. And I actually can't believe what I put together. I am neurodiverse, so I am autistic. So I struggle a lot with sensory issues and picking up on social cues. But despite this, I found out that I am not someone with a defect, but someone with particular interesting abilities. Despite the social difficulties experienced by many neurodiverse people, we often display complex collaborative and support behaviors when working in projects. And because our brains are wired differently from neurotypical people, we bring new perspectives and we have to see that people are individuals that when they come together, they can accomplish astonishing things. We've come on leaps and bounds. I think even in my lifetime, in terms of diversity, particularly in the space industry, you often see, well, I notice it with the, the Mars lander, there were loads of women in that control room. So I really hope that we can inspire even more young women to, to get into engineering because we do need more diversity, full stop, because we need the very best minds and you can't therefore afford to restrict your talent pool. We need to open that talent pool as wide as we can and then we can get the very best people working on exciting engineering projects in the future. I think the superpower that I would want to have is the superpower to understand all the world's problem. And as engineers, we can be doctors for the world to ensure that everyone is happy and they can live in a fair and equitable society. Behind Inventive is a wonderful team and big thanks to all of them. We've got Adam Fowler and Anna Scott-Brown who were the producers. Music was composed and performed by Brendan Williams. Animations and visuals were by Annabeth Robinson and Ben Warburton. And we've got multi-platform and social media content being directed by Jill Davis. If you're a teacher and you'd be interested in career materials centred around this podcast, then please go to our website, www.inventivepodcast.com, to find links. These materials are being developed by NU STEM from Northumbria University. So a big thanks to Carol Davenport, Antonio Portis and Jonathan Sanderson. The Inventive project is from the University of Salford. It is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and the podcast itself is an overtone production. So it's goodbye from me... Acoustic engineer, Professor Trevor Cox. The Inventive Podcast. Mixing engineering fact and fiction.